0: Good morning. I'm excited about this uh, this study. As we were talking about uh, this message series and how to cover the Book of Revelation in five weeks, uh, we realized that that was a daunting task, and we would not be able to go verse by verse. I've had to leave many of my charts at home, uh, depicting when it happens and where, and so. Uh, when we were thinking about it, though, we talked about it, and we realized that, that there's a lot of uh, uh, tropes. There's a lot of allusions that we would recognize uh, that we'd relate to in, in a fairy tale sense, right? So at one point in the book of Revelation, there's a dragon. And there's, a, there's a hero. There's lots of swords being mentioned. And this week, we're going to be talking about the damsel in distress. The damsel in distress, which is the church. Spoilers. It's the church. The church is the damsel in distress. Revelation is written to a group of people... The church who are under persecution, under pressure from the environment around them. And we are under pressure quite a bit as well. We are under difficulty as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be persecution. I don't know what your damsel in distress situation looks like. I don't know what your tower is, the tower that you're locked in. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's a mental illness of some kind. Maybe it's a, a, a physical illness. Maybe it's a broken marriage. It's difficulty with your children. Maybe it's a you feel trapped in a job. You feel locked in a tower of your work. I know for many of you this week, uh, the tower became trying to sort out what remains of your home. You become burdened by 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 your, your home situation now because you, there, there's parts of it that's destroyed. Maybe your car took some damage. Now you're trying to figure out how to get to work. You don't have clothes. I know for uh, one of our sister churches, one of our local churches, became a, dam- became a damsel in distress this week because Primaria Iglesia Baptista lost her entire building. She's meeting in a tent this morning, but she's only meeting in a tent this morning to say goodbye to what was her building because next week, and until she is ready to be in her own building again, she's meeting here with us. We're opening up. Yes. Amen. Praise God. We're going to open up space for her to have her connect groups here. We're going to open up space for her to have a worship service here on Sunday mornings with us, because that's what we do as the church. We come around others, we minister to them and care for them. But I don't know what you're going through this week, but I know that you probably feel like a damsel in distress. Maybe you're locked in a tower and you feel trapped and you feel forgotten. So this morning, I want us to look at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Don't worry, we're not going to look at all of it. and I want to look at the first three verses and look at, at how Revelation is a reminder that even though, yeah, we might be under pressure, we might be struggling, we might be having difficulty, we might be locked in this tower, rescue is coming. So we need to hold fast. The, the phrase hold fast is repeated again and again and again in the book of Revelation, especially in these first three chapters. So we need to hold fast to three things, to survive and to thrive in the midst of this tower imprisonment. So the first thing we need to hold fast to is the king. We need to hold fast to the king. So the book of Revelation is largely an apocalypse. Now, apocalypse doesn't mean just like end times, destruction. That's what it's become to mean, largely because of the book of Revelation. But an apocalypse is a genre of literature, typically filled with visions, prophecies, kind of trippy, and and, and a lot of meaning and symbolism in it. But Revelation is also this sort of hybrid book of the Bible where, yeah, it's an apocalypse, but it's also a letter. Look at verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this is a letter written by a man named John, uh, who's one of Jesus' apostles, probably at this point the last surviving apostle, and and there's a chain of of transmission that this letter has gone through. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is a message, a letter that's passed from God to Christ, to an angel, to John. And now John is transmitting it on to these churches that are in distress, these seven churches. It's almost like a letter is being smuggled into the tower that the church is imprisoned in. It's a letter from the king, and the king is saying, I'm coming to rescue you. Hang on. Hang in there. I'm coming to get you. And the first thing that John tells him is you need to remember who your king is. You need to know who it is that this king is that's coming to get you, coming to bail you out of this tower, coming to set you free, because that's going to affect how you live, how you function during your time of captivity, during your time of exile, during your time in the tower. If you know who it is that's coming to rescue you, then you're going to act differently than if you think the person who's coming to rescue you is not reliable. So let's look at these verses, at how John describes our rescuer, our king, so that we might hold fast to him during our tower experience, during the difficulties we go through. First, he says he's a giver of gifts that help us survive captivity. Look at verse 4 again. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who were before his throne. Now, like I said, the church is under pros- uh, persecution at the time. They're being pressured to make sacrifices to an emperor, probably Domitian, the emperor at the time, and, and, and it's under the guise of patriotism. If you want to be a good Roman citizen, you offer sacrifices to the emperor. If you're a bad patriot, if you're a bad Roman citizen, you won't do this. And obviously Christians have a problem with this. They're also being pressured in some business communities, if they're a part of different merchant guilds, different business guilds, uh, to make sacrifices to patron deities of these different guilds. So if you want to network, if you want to grow your business, you've got to make sacrifices to this certain patron god in order to have good connections with the people in your city. Again, Christians have an issue with this. It's not all that hard to see parallels in our day. We're often asked to mortgage our values, mortgage our beliefs for political power and influence. We're often asked to mortgage our values and beliefs to grow our business, to grow in our profession, to grow in our career. And we've been given gifts by God through the sacrifice of Christ to help us navigate this and to help us to survive and to help us to pursue what Christ has for us. Notice again what he says. It says grace to you. Grace is the unmerited favor of God that empowers us, enlivens us to know and to trust him And to know that what he has is better for us, it also helps us when we mess up because his grace is there. It says, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. We need peace. I don't know about you, but I'm an anxious person. I need peace. And frankly, I need peace in a way that has to be supernatural because there is no way that that normal peace, human-offered peace, is going to conquer some of my fears and worries. And then it also says the seven spirits. And from the seven spirits are before their own. This is not seven spirits, probably. Seven is a perfect number in Scripture, particularly again in Revelation, a lot of symbolism, right? So seven means a complete spirit. So this is probably one spirit, i.e. the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells in us when we come to believe in Christ, when we put our trust in Him. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, empowers us, guides us, strengthens us so that we might survive this difficult time in the tower, whatever your tower is. So he's a giver of good gifts. Our king is also a persevering, victorious ruler. Look at verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, John gives three descriptions of who he is. One, he says he's a faithful witness. This faithful witness, the word witness here is martyr, basically, which is where we get the word martyr from. There's not a lot of transmission there. It's just martyr. But it doesn't necessarily mean someone who dies. It means someone who's faithfully uh, proclaiming the truth despite difficulty and persecution. Jesus certainly was that. I know we know that Jesus Christ was persecuted, and he was, even to the point of death. But do you really look at his life and the Gospels? He's going from like one challenge to another, to another, to another. People trying to run him out of cities, people trying to kill him at one point, even before the cross. And Jesus is faithful. He sticks by the purpose and the mission of God. He perseveres, and that's important for us to know because we need to persevere despite the difficulty that we encounter. Things are hard. We're in a tower. We're a damsel in distress. Yes, but we need to persevere because our king persevered. It also says that he's victorious. He's the firstborn of the dead. This means that he's conquered death. Even though he was killed on the cross, he didn't stay dead because he was perfect, because he was sinless. The reason why he doesn't stay dead is because God accepts his sacrifice. Now, why do we need a sacrifice? Well, you and I have done things wrong. God has a law. He has a rule, a set of rules, and he expects us to follow those rules. And guess what? After Adam and Eve sinned, we are incapable of following his law perfectly. So we need someone that's going to keep the law perfectly and then pay the penalty for the fact that we weren't able to do that. And that's Jesus Christ. And the way that we know that his sacrifice is accepted is that God raises him on the third day. He doesn't stay dead, and he becomes the firstborn from the dead. And firstborn implies what? That there will be others. We believe that those of us who are in Christ Jesus will be raised into a newness of life, just like we pictured here in baptism. This young lady pictured the gospel story for us. She's buried with Christ and raised again. That's our hope. To be just like Christ, born into the resurrection. He's also a ruler, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Now, when you're being persecuted by a government like the Roman Empire that's supreme, and even to this day, 2,000 years later, we talk about the Roman Empire as one of the greatest kingdoms to ever exist. And at that time, I'm sure people thought there is no way anything's ever going to top the Roman Empire. That might actually be fair. Except for the kingdom of heaven. There's a greater authority that we can appeal to. Jesus Christ is ruler of the kings on earth. Now you might think to yourself, because church undergoing persecution, you know what? Jesus is going to come in, he's going to wreck shop, he's going to throw down on all these people that are persecuting the church. Yeah, maybe. Revelation certainly has those pictures in it. But you know what the greater victory is? Not that Jesus would judge his enemies, but that they would be converted by his love, that they would confess, repent, and come to know him. The greater victory is not destruction. The greater victory is a relationship with Christ. And it's a hope that's offered to you today as well. That's a greater victory. So we know that he's a persevering ruler. We also know that he is in control of events. Skip down to verse 8. We're going to come back to the rest. But skip down to verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. This, verse, this phrase is mentioned in verse 4, but it's expanded on here in verse 8. These are three phrases, Almighty, Alpha and Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. They're all saying the same thing. God is in control of events. And what's more than that, he's in control of history. Now we experience time in a linear fashion, One moment goes to the next moment, to the next moment, to the next moment. And despite our best efforts, despite how many different calendar apps they create, no matter how many alarms I set for myself, I cannot control time. You seem to, who are my people in here that just doesn't matter what you do, you're always going to be late. Yeah, it's okay, I'm with you. For those of us on time, we are frustrated by you, but we love you still. And for those of you who are always on time and early, the people who are late are frustrated by you as well. We are in, not in control of events, but Jesus Christ is in control of them, and it can be easy in the midst of the tower to think that God's plan has just moved on without you, that something has hit you, and you're never going to rebuild, you're never going to recover from it, and you, the, the, the plan of God, the plan of salvation has just moved on, and you're like, all right, I guess I'll just figure things out on my own, That is not what happens He is in control of everything. And what happens may not be good, but ultimately it will be worked out for your good and for the glory of God. That's what Romans 8 teaches us. So we need to hold fast to our king because he's worth holding fast to. One of the great Disney princesses, one of the great damsel in distresses, one of the first actually, is Snow White, right? Snow White goes to live scandalously with seven men in a cottage in the woods. But while she's there, she meets another guy uh, who's Prince Charming, I think that's all we know him by. He's Prince Charming, and he, uh, they, they, they have a, a fun time singing in the woods, I think. It's been a long time since I've seen Snow White. But then afterwards, she's telling the seven dwarves about it, and they're asking him all these questions. Was he handsome? Was he romantic? I think one of them actually asked, did he try to kiss you? I think that was bashful. And she says, he's perfect. There's nobody else like him. And then she goes into singing a song about him, again, as only Disney movies can do. Someday my prince will come. Someday we'll meet again, and away to his castle we'll go, to be happy forever I know. Someday when spring is here, we'll find our love anew, and the birds will sing and wedding bells will ring, someday when my dreams come true. I don't know if Walt knew that he was writing a hymn of expectation for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but that's exactly how we feel. We know, hold fast to the King, he's coming. He's coming. Someday he will come and he will rescue us. But we don't just hold fast to the king. We have to hold fast to the kingdom. Let's hold fast to the kingdom. So if you've ever read anything or seen anything about royal families, whether they're British or otherwise, uh, typically wherever the, the, the royal family goes, kind of the kingdom goes with them, Right? So if, if a royal member of the family makes a mistake, it kind of, again, not typically today, but, but in the past, if a, if a member of the royal family made a big blunder, it could lead to diplomatic ramifications, problems in, 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 in foreign policy with other countries, all sorts of bad things can happen with a royal family if they make mistakes. Because the royal family isn't just a part of the kingdom. In fact, they're kind of the embodiment of the kingdom. And an attack on the royal family is an attack on the kingdom itself. This is what one of the reasons why World War I started, right? Uh, the, the heir to the throne of Austria was, was killed, and, and boom, World War I breaks out. Uh, a whole host of other reasons as well, right? Well, in, in Revelation 1, to 5-7, John reminds us that we're a kingdom. We've been made a kingdom by Jesus' death and resurrection, and so we've been given this responsibility to take this kingdom wherever we go. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we're royal ambassadors. 1 Peter 2.9 says we're a royal priesthood and we're adopted children in Romans 8. We have to know that you're not just citizens of this eternal kingdom. You are a part of a royal family. And wherever you go, the kingdom goes with you. And this is important to know. And, and, And to know how we function as a part of the royal family, you typically look to the king, right? However, the king acts, that's how we should act. Well, in Scripture, Jesus is given three roles primarily. He is a prophet, a priest, and a king. And I think those are good indicators, and they're described a little bit here in this passage. They're good indicators of how we should function in the world, in the tower that we're in now as we become damsel, as we remain damsels in distress. So how do we do this? How do we hold fast to the kingdom? Well, let's look at Jesus' roles. The first one is we hold fast through influence. Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom. As I said, despite our captivity, we're still a part of the kingdom. We're still called to represent it. Now, how do you do that? How do you bear your influence? One of the ways is through your creativity. We have this word, this noun now uh, that we use to describe people who are artistic. We call them what? They're a creative, ooh, like they're some sort of magician, you know. This is Merlin. He's a creative. Right. Somebody has a kid named Merlin. That's awesome. Um, no, no, no. We we everybody is creative. Accountants, you are creative. I don't know how, but you are creative. You are. All of us are creative. We've been in given, made in the image of God. And the first thing you find out about God in Genesis one is what? In the beginning, God created. If we're made in his image, therefore we are also creative. So we create, do art, do music. Be creative in your job. Speaking of your job, you've been given a job, you've been given work to do to advance the kingdom of God. Your job is not just about meeting your needs and setting up a retirement fund. Your job is about creating The kingdom of heaven on earth. You, as an employee, you do your best work so that the gospel goes forth. As long as your work is not immoral, it is a part of God's plan for taking care of His creation. This is why we seek the best for our customers. This is why we don't cut corners at work. This is why we pay our employees well and take care of them. We're a part of God's plan. You know what your job statement, your mission statement for your company should be, or your job description should start with? I want you to do this. Go home, find your job description, and just write at the top on earth as it is in heaven. This is what my job description is. I make it on earth as it is in heaven. We need to take seriously this mandate from God because historically the church has not done that. Or we've tried to take it seriously, and instead we've tried to rule through power and through control. Rather than ruling and reigning as our Lord ruled and reigned, which was how? By serving, by laying down our lives. Let's rule, let's have influence like Christ had influence by serving others. We also hold fast through intervention. Through intervention, look at verse 6. And he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's the job of a priest? It's to be a go between, an intermediary between God and humanity. And Jesus was this. Jesus is this for us. Jesus died so that we might have a reconciled relationship with God. That's his role, that's what he does. And now he intercedes on our behalf. He prays on our behalf. He's a he's constantly accepted sacrifice on our behalf. That gives us access to the throne of God. Now, what do we do with that access? We pray, right? Of course we pray. But think about it how often do we pray for just ourselves? Lord, this is what I'm going through. This is my tower experience. This is my difficulty. This is my issue, Lord. And then sometimes we include our family, like people that we're connected to. So we're like, Lord, be with my mom. She's got like arthritis. And that's, that's all we do. We're called to be inter, uh, interceders. We're called to intervene on behalf of other people. We're called to go to the Lord and say, Lord, be with these people in this neighborhood that I'm not even a part of, but they've lost their homes. Please help them, Lord. Do something Show me how I can help. Do we approach God on behalf of our state, our coworkers, our country? Do we go on behalf of our enemies? It's truly an amazing thing to pray for the people that put you in the tower. But do we do like Christ who said, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? Or are we like James and John where we're like, Lord, rain down fire on my enemies. Lord forgive them for they do not know what they do. That's proper response. Intervene on their behalf. We also hold fast through indicating. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. We don't mention that Jesus is a prophet very often because we're very interested in the idea that Jesus is treated as more than a prophet, and rightfully so. But Jesus is anything he's not anything less than a prophet. He does miracles, he he gives signs and wonders, he speaks about the future, he calls people to repent. I mean, he ticks all the boxes of a prophet. I notice in verse 7, it says that Jesus is coming with the clouds. John is taking up a prophetic stance here. He's saying, Jesus is coming with the clouds. This will happen in the future. And this is our responsibility as well, to remind people that Christ is coming. Now, this is not holding up a sign somewhere like a sporting event and being like, repent for the end is near. Not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is reminding people that the king who loves them, who died for them, wants a relationship with them, and he is coming one day. And that we need to be ready. And the way that you are ready is to accept him as your savior and continue to grow in grace. To pursue him. A prophetic role is also calling out things in our society that aren't right, that aren't godly. and Saying, Lord... This isn't right, fix it. And going to people and saying, look, I know you're not a believer and I know I shouldn't expect you to act like one and I'm not, but I really genuinely believe that God has a better plan for us than this, than what you're doing to yourself. Try it God's way. The kingdom is more important than our individual desires. And I think so many of us look at the church, the body of Christ, as this confederation of sovereign individuals rather than a unified body of Christ. And you know who I think is one of the worst Disney princesses of all time? Who is it? I've said it before. It's Ariel. She is the most self-centered, self-focused. I wish she'd get caught in a dragnet because she is one of the worst Disney princesses ever. She's like 15 and like, Daddy, I love him. Ugh. Oh, go on. Oh, you're just the worst. She, she gets her, her dad turned into a seaweed. She mortgages like the entire kingdom so she can be with a guy that she just saw on a ship one day. Don't be Ariel. Don't be Ariel. I'm sorry if that was your favorite Disney princess. I really am. I'm not sorry. Don't be Ariel. Be about the kingdom. Use what God has given you to be about the kingdom. Intervene on the behalf of others. Love other people. Intercede on their behalf. Indicate the king is coming and he loves you and he wants to be with you. So hold fast to the kingdom. Also hold fast to hope. Hold fast to hope. When you think about the damsel in distress locked in the tower, one of the things that's easy to think about is that she eventually probably lost hope. Like if it was a long period of time, she might have lost hope and she might have thought to herself, you know what? I I need to make peace with the people and the situation that I'm in. Maybe I'll just betray the kingdom because he's clearly forgotten about me. And I'll just, I'll just switch sides. I'll go and fight for the other team because this is just, this is the worst. And I think this is maybe where the churches were at the beginning of Revelation. They're probably starting the second generation. So the first generation of Christians, the churches that were founded by Paul and by John and by all these guys, those churches are now into their second generation. John's, uh, John is still alive, but he's exiled. Paul's probably dead. Peter's probably dead. James, we know, is dead. And all those guys probably thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And the church is adjusting at this point to the fact that this might be a longer prison sentence than we thought. This might be a longer time in the tower than we realized. And it can be easy to despair. It can be easy to give up hope in those situations. So I want us to look at the seven churches and look at ways that we can hold fast to our hope. First thing we need to do is we need to keep our identity. Keep your identity. Verse 4 of chapter 2. He's trying to the church at Ephesus, and they're a pretty good church, but he says, But this I have against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What Jesus is saying here is you've lost your first love, not the love you had chronologically first, but the most important love in your life, where you derive your identity from. We find our identity in all sorts of things, our accomplishments, our work, our business, our, our family life our material things, we need to reorient. And those things aren't necessarily bad. We need to reorient our lives to finding our identity solely in Christ. Otherwise, when we lose those things that we find our identity in, we lose hope. We also need to reject fear. Look at verse 10. We're in the church in Smyrna. It says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The church in Smyrna was about to be hit hard with persecution, and they were a really good church. We live in a society that sort of preys on fear. There's a lot of fear-mongering that happens. We need not be afraid, and when we become afraid, when you become fearful, the response that you have is to take it to the Lord. Not just have faith that everything's going to be okay, but take it to the Lord and be like, "Lord Jesus, I'm scared right now. Please strengthen me. Please hold me up in the midst of these fears. So we need to reject fear. We need to hold on to what's important. We're going to look at two churches here. Look at verse 14, sorry, verse 15. Of chapter two. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, uh, they think, may have been a group of teachers who were coming in and saying, you can still make sacrifices to the emperor and be a Christian because you can just pretend like you're not, you can just say in your heart, I'm not really doing this to the emperor. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. The ends do not justify the means. Jesus is saying, you can't make compromises on core things. No one deserves your worship but me, and we will not compromise that when you're trapped in the tower the temptation is to survive any way you can we adopt practices that ends justify the means we can't do that then you look at chapter uh or the end of verse 24 uh sorry yeah 24 but to the rest of you this is the church at thyatira the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The deep things of Satan may have been Christians who were learning things of the occult, learning pagan practices so that they could be relevant, so they could then go to those people, share the gospel, with them, and be like, look, I know what you're doing, and this is why it's wrong. They were trying to destroy things from the inside and bring the gospel to these people, which again you'd think, great idea. Except Jesus is like, no. Again, ends justify the means. What's the point of being relevant if by the end of the day, you don't have anything to offer people that you've related to them? We cannot sacrifice everything on the altar of relevance in the same way that we can't sacrifice everything on the altar of tradition. We worship relevance, and we need to be careful of that. We also need to reject cultural Christianity. Look at verse 1. And to the angel at the church in Sardis, I write, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I can't think of a worse thing for a church to hear. You are dead. Be wise to listen to this, because we struggle with cultural Christianity here. We look like we're vibrant and alive, but we're, we're not. We need to do what Christ calls these people to do. Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains. We need to ask Christ to wake up, to strengthen, wake us up and to strengthen what remains inside of us that is committed to him and devoted to him, that's holding fast to him. We do embrace vulnerability. Verse 8. This is a church in Philadelphia. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. They were about to be persecuted by, by people who were pretending to be Jewish but weren't. They had little power. When we have little power, our, our temptation is to run for control, right? To seize the day, right? We do embrace vulnerability. Recognize that when we were weak, then we were strong. To reject materialism, verse 17. For you, I say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is the church at Laodicea. They were wealthy, and they thought their wealth would keep them from feeling the pains of persecution. And Jesus is saying, No, that's not the case. Mm -mm." We need to hold fast to our hope. And and again, looking at my Disney princesses that, that I think are great illustrations, one of the newer ones is Moana, right? Moana's greatness. Um, I love the rock too. I'll pretty much see anything with the rock in it. And uh, Moana, uh, she, she's trying to rescue her, fa- her, her kingdom and her king because she's a princess, obviously. And she's sailing across the ocean. And every time she encounters difficulty, every time she encounters trial, every time she runs into a problem, she has this like mantra she goes to. She says, I am Moana of Matanui. You will board my boat, sail across the sea, and restore the heart of Tefidi. Some of y'all quoted that like right along with me. She says it over and over again. We too have to latch on to our core beliefs. We need to say who we are. I am Travis Cook, and I am a child of God by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even though I'm locked in the tower now, even though I'm going through a difficult time now, I believe and trust that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will come back and deliver me and rescue me. I met a real damsel in distress this week. Her name's Carolyn. And Carolyn lost her entire home to the tornadoes we had this week. And some of the staff members were there kind of helping her clean out some things. And she was joyful. She was expectant. She was hopeful. And she was trusting that the Lord was going to make everything right. Because here's the secret. Yes, we are a church. As a church, and that, that lady this week, Carolyn, we're damsels in distress, yes. But here's what we are not. We are not damsels in despair. We are damsels in distress, but not in despair. So we hold fast to hope. Hold fast to your king and hold fast to the kingdom. Let's pray together. Gracious God and heavenly Father, we come before you now and first we lift up to you those who are struggling this this week because of the damage that were done to their home by a tornado. Pray that you would hold them up, that they would not give in to despair, but their, their heart would be just emblazoned with hope and that hope would be infectious to the rest of us, Lord God. And pray that we would learn from them, and that we'd be able to serve them. I pray that you would draw them close to yourself during these times. And for those of us who are locked in towers of different kinds, whether it's personal struggles, professional struggles, private, whatever it might be, I pray that you would keep us safe in the tower, hold us close to you, hold us fast, and that you might receive glory, and that you might come soon, Lord Jesus, to rescue your bride from the tower. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.